Let me have a prayer with you and then tell you what we're going to do. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you will bless our time here, that you'd make it productive, meaningful, that you'd guide me by your Holy Spirit. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> so if we talk about what's left to do in the world, you know, Jesus said to take this gospel to kingdom, to all the world, for witness to all nations, then the, earth, the end would come. That first angel's message says to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people, when we talk about what's left to do, a large part of what's left to do is to reach the Muslim population. I mean the people of Morocco, Algeria, of Egypt, of Somalia, of Yemen, of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Qatar, and Yemen, and Iran and Iraq and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Indonesia and Malaysia. And then those majority populations that you find in some other countries, minority populations like Sierra Leone, for example, and so many in Nigeria. It, really, when we talk about what's left to do, a large part of it is in this population. And um, when Adventists, those who get involved, begin to tackle the immense job, some estimate one and a half billion Muslims in the world. When we talk about what has to be done, our, our paths tend to diverge. That is, we have two different ways of going about it. And let me just describe those briefly. In one way, we escape much persecution. Uh, our converts remain Muslims. They remain readers of the Quran. They continue to attend the mosque. Uh, they become uh, Muslim believers in Jesus as the Messiah who are getting ready for his second coming for the day of judgment. And that's our end point, what we're aiming for, to let this become um, a movement inside Islam that grows and prospers there. This has been done especially in Bangladesh, for example, and uh, with, with uh, failed or abortive startups in several other places like Indonesia. But another approach <clears throat> is the approach that treats the Quran as a deceptive book, one that was written by a false prophet, and that leads people to uh, renounce Islam in favor of Adventism. And uh, I think if you look at these two approaches right at the outset, you can see that they are not highly compatible. I mean, surely there are very many people who are, you might say, in the middle between the two that use the Quran extensively and yet uh, themselves don't believe that it's an inspired book. <clears throat> there are many of those. And I just want to talk to you briefly about which of those I'm representing and about why. In the work that we're doing, we do not use the Quran at all. Uh, the studies that I've written for Muslim people don't quote the Quran. They don't make a reference to it as a source of authority. And when I'm giving studies and sharing with Muslim people, uh, I immediately, from the very first time I share anything, 
am sharing the scriptures from the prophets of the Bible. We'll talk about how, and I'm having good success with that, and you might wonder how, but that's going to come a little bit later. One reason is because of what I find in Revelation chapter 9. Maybe you know that Revelation 9 uh, describes the rise of Muhammad. It describes the rise of Islam. And when it describes that rise, it uses that figure of a falling star. That falling star uh, has uh, access to the bottomless pit of Arabia and uh, ends up tormenting the Roman powers there and, and giving them a terrible time for 150 years and then for 391 years and 15 days. And anyway, maybe you do, maybe you don't know those prophecies, but I'm going to zero in on one particular part that you find in Revelation 9. And that is that those, those armies of the Muslim conquerors are illustrated as locusts, but as locusts that have tails like scorpions. And what we're told, both in the fifth and the sixth trumpet, is that there's power in their tails to sting, that their power is in their tails. Now, when you think about tails in Revelation, maybe the tail that comes to your mind first is the one in chapter 12, just three chapters later. You remember in that chapter that Satan is described as a dragon. And it says that that dragon with his tail, he takes one third of the stars with him. What does that tail on Satan represent? What about those tails that are on all those uh, Muslim warriors? Well, there's a key passage about that in the Bible. It's Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm reading to you from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 15. It says, the elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. Did you catch that? The tail there it has a meaning that is quite logical when you think about the meaning of the word head. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the ancient and honorable. And you find that word head used that way to refer to kings in many places. But what does the tail represent? That hind end, the, the swinging item? It says, the prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. Well, when you think that through, suddenly the metaphor of Satan taking a third of the angels with his tail, that comes into focus. You can see Satan didn't take them by his, uh, by his military strength. It wasn't by his force of arms. It wasn't by wrestling them. Satan took the angels by his dishonesty. It was by his trickery. It was by the fact that he had things to say that sounded true when they weren't. When he had things to say that were true, that he said in conjunction with things that weren't true. It was his very sneaky, subtle deception that took holy angels down with him. And I think you can make the application very plainly. That the Lord Jesus, when he spoke about prophets after his day, he didn't encourage us to start with a, with a meter that was neutral. He didn't encourage us to, to approach a person claiming to have visions with a, a very naive uh, idea like maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. That He gave us a, 
instead a warning. He said, beware of false prophets. That is, he said, be skeptical, be watching carefully, because they appear to have the clothing of sheep, even though they are dangerous, deadly dogs. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that the people that I'm finding, many of them in Islam, have already been disillusioned with it. Many of them already are thinking. And those ones that are thinking, the Spirit has been moving on them for a long time, they are ready to go exploring. Even those who are very committed to their religion, frequently, after a short time, they become interested in the other prophets. So I have myself done a very careful reading of the entire Quran, most of it two times, many parts of it even more than that, taking notes, watching carefully, making cross-references to my Bible, and I have concluded beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no reasonable syncretism possible between the Quran and the Bible. If the Quran is in fact a true book, then the Bible is a false one. And if the Bible is a true book, then the Quran is a false one. And uh, there, there really is no other option except for that they're both part wrong and part right. That's the only third conclusion you could come to. You're Adventists, most of you watching this probably. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, the Quran 45 times affirms that hell is a place of eternal burning, saying plainly that it's a place where bodies are burned and that when your skin burns off you, you no longer can feel the pain. So God recreates a new skin on you so you can continue to feel the pain. And that happens over and over again through eternity. You crawling to the gates, as it were, and crawling up, crying out for mercy and receiving none. And, uh, and really, there's very much explicit descriptions of that eternal burning hell and what happens there in that book. So, so as you can see, I, I am very determined on, on my view of this. Now, let me just tell you a few stories, then we'll do a little more Bible study and talk about methods. Uh, I was uh, scanning the internet. When I say scanning, I'm doing something you could do, looking for places where people talk about things on Facebook, about human rights, or about freedoms, or about health, or, and I'm scanning those places looking for comments that come from Muslim names. Yeah, it's true that of those billion and a half Muslims, almost every one of them has a name that at the very uh, appearance looks like a Muslim name. And in many parts of the world, the firstborn son is named Muhammad, just as a matter of course. So it, it's not hard for me to find some of these. And I wrote to this one man, uh, his name is Musab, or probably a good million of those in the world. I wrote to Musab, and uh, eventually, many months later, he wrote me back. And this has happened to me a number of times that replies come late because I'm not friends with these people on Facebook. Uh, he wrote back, and I began to share with him. And you know, he picked up on it quickly. He was interested in the prophets, 
he was himself leaning maybe towards skepticism. He grew up in Yemen, and there he saw some inconsistency. He saw imams that seemed to just change their story when the politics changed. And uh, so he was already perplexed. And when he saw the Bible evidence in favor of a reliable scripture, he dug into it. Musab, when I first met him, he brought a friend named Abdullah. And Abdullah and Musa both studied well. They're both making progress. I gave them eventually both Bibles. I'll warn you, don't do that too soon. Uh, many uh, Muslims have a superstitious view of the Bible. It's similar to the view you would have of a Ouija board or of a seance, where you might be afraid to have that board in your house because it would give demons access to you. That is the way that many Muslims feel about the Bible. It certainly isn't all of them. It looks like in Birmingham in the UK that Muslims are happy to read the scripture. But I'll tell you where, where I live in, uh, in Malaysia, many of them feel quite the opposite. And so it varies a bit. Anyway, uh, we had made progress. And so I gave Musab and Abdullah at different times Bibles. And uh, Musab made good progress. But Abdullah, he ended up uh, having what I'd call a backsliding, significant backsliding. Musab ended up traveling. Uh, he left Malaysia and went back to his home country and eventually on to Egypt. And he's working for me there and helping. Uh, but Abdullah, it, uh, my experience with him wasn't going so well. But back to Egypt, Musab from there began reaching out to people. And two of the people he reached out to were ladies that he knew as children in Yemen. Uh, both of them took interest in the studies. I ended up communicating with both of them. One of them knew English better than the other. And that one that knew English the best, she has become now a thoroughgoing Seventh-day Adventist, even learning things like hydrotherapy and, and how to treat people there that have COVID-19. And it, she has reached out now to another, a brother of her friend, and he's been studying. His name is Osama, and he has learned so much I think already he views himself as a Christian. And, uh, but, but then I got a contact recently from a man in Malaysia who had, had left Islam, become a Christian just on his own. And he and Abdullah became friends, and that revived Abdullah. And Abdullah began to share with him what he had known about the Bible. And now both of these men have become little centers of influence right there in that country. And at the very same time, uh, with that girl in Yemen who has made such progress, you can see that she is reaching several other individuals. And what I'm trying to describe to you in this very undetailed story is that finding one searching person has led now to more than half a dozen people who are earnestly seeking. Well, just three weeks ago, I was doing another one of those little search and, and find missions, and I found a guy named Sajad. I wrote to him, and he wrote me back within a day, very nicely. I'm glad he did that. And you know, within two days of studying the prophets, he wrote and told me that he was thinking about becoming a Christian, and now he's in contact with Musab, and they're encouraging each other. They can talk in Arabic. The Sajad also knows a little bit of Farsi. Now, let me tell you another story that happened, oh, it must be now, must be about 16 years ago, something like that. There was a lady in Iran that 
was uh, very ill with late stage breast cancer. And she wasn't finding in her own religion any power to cope. So she decided to go before she died and check out Christianity. She took her five-year-old boy with her and uh, she, she went to the Christian church. And when she got there, they wouldn't let her in. That's right. They would not let her in. You know why? It's because Christianity in many of these Muslim nations has made peace at the expense of its integrity. That is, Christians in many Muslim nations have made peace by agreeing not to witness to their neighbors until there's almost a long-term animosity, but a let, let live, let live mentality. And they were afraid of repercussions, so they told her no. So she went and she explored Zoroastrianism and, uh, or Buddhism, and she ended up finding some power there, but she died. And her five-year-old son grew up and he came to study in Malaysia. And there he decided to kind of follow that experiment that his mother had failed in, in resolving. He found a Christian girl in the university where he was studying. He asked her to take him to church, and she took him to a Pentecostal church. I'll tell you, she wasn't a Pentecostal, but she was afraid of her own church having repercussions. So she took him to that church instead. And when he went to that church, his name is Shervin, what he saw there was what he considered to be like sentimental uh, nothingness, uh, nothing substantial, and it didn't impress him, and so he, he didn't go back. But after another year and a half or so in the university, he got the urge to try again, and this time the girl he asked was an active Seventh-day Adventist. She took him to the Adventist church. He began to study the prophecies. He became a thoroughgoing Adventist. And uh, since that time, he's gone back to his home country, Iran, and even did work there reaching the faithful people, reaching to find faithful people, risking his own life to do that. In fact, he went to jail even when he was with me in Malaysia for selling a great controversy to a Malay lady. I'm telling you that some of these people are extremely courageous. And I have plenty more stories I could tell you, but I think for the sake of your time, what I want to do is to talk more about methods and maybe mention a few other stories later. But no, I need to tell you one more story first because it's relevant to the methods. In Borneo, that's, that part of Malaysia is in Borneo. The rules there are quite a bit different about religion. And that's why in Sabah and Sarawak, about one in 100 people are Seventh-day Adventist. But in uh, West Malaysia, where I live, it's about one in 5,000. It's because the rules are so different in these two countries. And so there in Borneo, we started a training program, a secondary school with a primary school attached to it in a jungle setting. And we found out that near us were many illegal immigrants, Filipinos, that are not allowed to attend school anywhere. You know, they're not allowed to attend school anywhere. And uh, consequently, we invited them to our school and they were coming and the children were learning and, and they took Bible classes like everyone else. They made a lot of progress. Some of the children began to pray in the name of Jesus. It angered some of the parents, but they didn't pull them out because where else could their children learn English and learn science and learn math? So they let them stay, but they were a bit irritated. And then COVID-19 hit. And when it hit, 
many of those Filipino men lost their jobs because the Philippines shut down the rubber and the oil plantations. And that's where they were working. And when they didn't have jobs, they didn't have money. And with no money, they couldn't feed their extensive families. And when I authorized the administrators of our school to begin feeding some of those families, that compassion opened doors among the parents. And now one of those mothers is already praying in the name of Jesus. And we have quite a number taking an interest in studies. What I'm trying to say to you is that there are ways that God will make for us to do the work we're doing. One more story. I don't know if I'll ever get done telling you one more story, but in this one, uh, a lady from Italy, maybe some of you know her, so I won't mention her. Uh, she visited uh, Malaysia to volunteer in a health center that was reaching Buddhists. But while she was shopping one day, she encountered a young Malay lady who was excited to meet a European, a beautiful European, and they began corresponding. Well, that young lady, when she went home, she was quite proud to have a, you know, a selfie with a European. And so she came back to show her family and her older sister saw it and saw that she had got the contact information for WhatsApp with that Italian lady. And so she copied that information and she wrote her. And to make the story short, that Italian lady began to share little promises from the Bible, encouraging thoughts and talking about the love of God. And it just warmed the heart of that older sister. That older sister had been treated so badly, teased and perplexed and troubled for so long. It had bothered her a lot. And um, anyway, she ended up accepting the gospel. And the husband of that Italian uh, lady visited Malaysia and baptized her. And uh, when, when she was afraid of being caught by her family because she was not participating any longer in the religious uh, programs of her family, she fled for safety's sake and she came to us. And she's been living with us, thank you. She's been living with us for some time, on and off, sometimes going away, sometimes going back with her family. But the local police learned about her and I ended up having a visit by six police officers in January this year. Six of them. They came, and I was warned to beware. Maybe I was about to be arrested. But they didn't arrest me. They asked a lot of questions. They asked about that girl. They asked about our book work, because we've sold about 40,000 books there in Malaysia. And uh, they were asking because they wanted to find out if what we're doing is illegal. Well, I'll tell you about the system because I told them about the system. Maybe you can help with it, some of you. When we find contacts there, we connect them to people who aren't in Malaysia so that they can reach out by WhatsApp or by Messenger. And that way, the person doing the evangelism isn't breaking any laws. Because when you're in Germany, you're not breaking a law to send gospel messages to a person in Malaysia. When you're in Italy or the UK or France, you're not breaking a law to send messages to Yemen or to Saudi Arabia. You have freedoms that, uh, that people in those countries can't have. So in doing that, we're acting as connectors, helping people find. And then when I travel, I can send those messages myself. And so I might make a connection uh, in Malaysia, enter that in my phone. And then when I'm in some other country, I can begin sending studies. Anyway, you get the idea. 
I explained that to the police. Uh, they asked, are you obeying the laws here? I said, only technically. And I explained to them that we're trying to share the gospel with people. And, uh, you know, they appreciated that at least technically we're trying to obey the laws. They appreciated that. And they asked for copies of our books, and I gave Ministry of Healing to all six of them. But the lead officer asked the most questions, and she wanted the great controversy. And now I've been in touch with her for seven months. Several times she's asked me to pray for her. She showed me evidence that she, she is searching about Christianity on the internet, and she's found evidence of people praying for Muslims, and she's looking for light and truth, maybe. So you can pray for the work that we're doing. I see God is prospering us. I don't mean it's without persecution. I mean that we've had some already. But now let me talk to you a bit about, about methods. Well, I have so many more stories written down here that I haven't told you yet. But anyway, methods first. Maybe you know some people. Maybe you work with some. Maybe your doctor is a Muslim. Maybe you live near refugees. Uh, I think there are maybe four or five million refugees in Europe right now. I'm encouraging you to make friends with them and to invite them to your house for a meal. Don't wait until they invite you. Please invite them to your house. I suppose you're a vegetarian, but if you're not, I recommend it to you. Invite them to your house and feed them a good vegetarian meal and explain to them about the health benefits and just be open about your diet, about the fact that you don't use caffeine, you don't use alcohol, you don't use drugs, marijuana. Let them know about the values you have because it's very likely when you invite them to your house that they're gonna reciprocate and invite you to their home if they can. Of course, if they don't have a home or if they're refugees and have no money, they might not. But if they can, they're likely to invite you back. And that will save you some inconsistency if they already know the values you have. Yeah, invite them to your house. That's a very bond-building experience. And you should know that Muslims have learned a lot about the West by movies. Do you know what Europeans and Americans are like in movies? We kill at a whim. We have sex whenever we have an impulse to do it and someone who will cooperate. We lie and cheat for fun. We are violent when we're the good guys and we're cruel and sadistic when we're the bad guys. This is the way Europeans and Americans are in the movies. And when you invite someone to your home, and when they see that you have hospitality, that is one of the most cherished values among many Muslim cultures, especially in the Middle East. That kind of charity is treasured. It's, it's viewed as maybe one of the evidences of a warm and soft heart of, of being good people. And when you're able to show that kind of hospitality, you have just done something significant to break down the barriers between you and those friends. Well, there's some other barriers that may be in good time that you'll have a chance to break down. I wanna tell them to you and give you some ideas about how to do it. Well, one barrier is that Europe has fought Islam famously for centuries in the Crusades. I hope none of you use the word crusade to describe a series of prophecy lectures in Europe. 
we have we have fought those crusades for a long time and so it's in your interest to explain something about the fact that america is misguided in its support of israel did you know that that america is misguided i don't mean that the jews shouldn't have a place to live i don't mean that that the un shouldn't have given them a piece of land where they could be safe if that was the basis of the united states support then i wouldn't say anything about it but the basis is quite different than that the basis of the american support is the evangelical falsehood that god has given that land permanently to the jews that that land was given to the jews as an as an inalienable right and that they're going to have a revival of christianity among the jews on that land in fulfillment of prophecy that jerusalem is going to become a jewish center again and that that uh that hill where the mosque is is going to be a, a, a christian center a jewish center this idea that the jews are always god's special people is based on a misunderstanding of prophecy and you as an adventist understand better from daniel 9 that the jews were given 490 years they were given time and they blew it they were given time when they had prophets that came specially to them Jesus confirmed the gospel with them for three and a half years. Then after he died, three and a half more years. That's why you find so many miracles during that period. But evangelicals think that Jews are still the special people. They don't understand Romans 2, 28 and 29, uh, that he is a Jew, which is not, not one who's one outwardly, but the one who is inwardly. Circumcision is that of the heart and of the spirit, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So that's one idea that when you share it, when there comes a good chance to talk about how you, you don't believe in that evangelical idea that the Jews have a right to Palestine as God's given land, you're breaking down quite a barrier. And there's something else. It's this idea that, uh, the idea that the Jews have twisted scripture. Daniel 9 is one of the best evidences that we have that God did not allow the Jews to change the Bible. Because, you know, Daniel 9 is that one passage that talks about the Messiah. Uh, it's the, maybe the only passage in the entire Old Testament that uses the word Messiah the way Jews use it today, Daniel 9. And when it talks about the Messiah, it specifically says that he's going to come within five centuries of the Persian Empire. And you know, that puts it 2,000 years ago. If the Jews could change any part of scripture, it would have been the timing of Daniel 9. If they could have changed anything, it would have been that, and it's not changed. So that idea eliminates part of the propaganda machine. Well, another thought that you ought to consider, that, you know, have you studied with Jehovah's Witnesses? maybe they've come to your door jehovah's witnesses often launch into their uh work by starting an argument on the issue of the trinity they do that because they know that they have memorized all the bible verses related to to their arguments and you haven't memorized the ones related to yours so even if there were a hundred verses on each side they know their hundred and you only know two of yours 
So when they get into an argument with you, when they get into an argument with you about the Godhead, they always win. Well, Muslims have a similar idea about the Godhead. I don't mean similar to Jehovah's Witnesses, but I mean similar in that they often bring it up at the outset. They have an idea that there's one God and that you believe in three gods. And right at the beginning, they'll end up saying, do you believe in the Trinity? I want to give you an out. I want to tell you what I say that seems to work most of the time. I'll say to them, friend, we're just beginning to get to know each other. We're just starting our experience, our relationship. So I'm asking that let's not talk about these things that are likely to divide us right now. Let's talk about them later. Let's work now on studying the things that we have in common and put off arguments about God, which is so high above us that we can't even understand him. Let's put those off for a later time. Do you know, I find that when you hold out an olive branch, many people want to hold an olive branch out to you and that we are really at our best interest to do things that way. I feel like reading you a bunch of messages, but I think that wouldn't be maybe the best use of the time right now. Um, I've written a series of studies that seem to be quite effective, and I want to give you uh, an opportunity to have them. Let me tell you my WhatsApp number. It is, but now I'm drawing a blank, so I'm going to have to look and see. It's area code plus six zero one four nine six one six two zero three. Maybe you can back this up and play it back to yourself a few times. Uh, or you could write me by email. I think the administrators there ASI know my email address. I would be happy to share those studies with you. I wrote them, of course, in English, but they've now been translated into German, and they're being translated right now into Russian. And I'd love to find someone to help me with uh, several other languages. Uh, but they have been translated already into Malay and Indonesian and to Urdu and to Farsi and, of course, into Arabic. And I'm looking for someone for French. And they've been translated into Chinese. And you might say, what do you mean Chinese? It, well, listen, there's only, with Chinese, the written language is the same, whether it's spoken by people you know, Mandarin or any of the other dialects. We have it in beginning in Bengali, and we're starting also in, uh, in um, Turkish. I'm looking for someone to help with uh, some of the other languages. Puli is starting right now, and maybe also uh, Hausa. So, I'm trying to get these studies into as many languages as I can, the ones that are spoken especially by the Muslims of the world. And we're making good progress, as I said. Um, in those studies, they're designed to be shared by social media, where you can share them by WhatsApp, or you can share them by Messenger. Uh, especially, we're making videos. And... Um, I'd love to send some of those videos to you that are in Farsi with English uh, subtitles. I think you'd be impressed with them. But we also have some in 
English and Malay at a website called Mangaba. Well, I'll, maybe I'll send that to you when you write to me later. So I don't want to have to spell it for you now because I'm a terrible speller. So I'm suggesting that you use those studies, that uh, they seem to work. Uh, most Muslims outside of the Middle East don't read the Quran in a language that they understand. Uh, they'll read it in Arabic, that they will pronounce it more or less correctly, but they don't know Arabic, the understanding. So when it, you send them a studies and you talk about the, what the prophet Moses says and the prophet Abraham and the prophet Jacob and the prophet Isa, uh, those are familiar names to them from what they've heard the imams say in the mosque. And I found that quite a number of Muslims, when they begin reading these studies, they don't recognize that these studies aren't from the Quran. Now, when they don't recognize it, that's not because of anything that I say in the studies designed to trick them. There's nothing there designed to be tricky at all. It's just the fact that they just don't know enough to know. And so they begin to learn, and it's quite helpful to them. Uh, you might wonder how you find those kind of contacts. I mentioned to you that I search on, uh, online for, for people who are having conversations. But also, I find that the Muslims of the world are in business. And you end up finding them driving your taxis in Europe. You find in many parts of the world they're doing that. Many of them own gas stations in the United States. And many of them are uh, doctors in some parts of the world. That is, you probably interact with them quite frequently, even there in Europe, if you think it through. And when I'm in a taxi, uh, especially when I'm using something like Uber or Grab as our Malaysian equivalent, uh, I'll let them know that maybe when I need a taxi next time, I'll just call you directly and save you sharing part of the fare with this company. And I'm happy to do that, and I, I do do that. And, you know, they're happy to give me their WhatsApp contact in that case. And once I have that, then after a week or two, I'll say, hey, I found a series of studies based on the prophets that Muslims and Christians have in common. I'd like your feedback on them, and I'll send them the first few studies. You know, when I say I'd like your feedback, that sounds a lot different. You say, I'd like to teach you what the Bible says. I'm not using the word Bible. I'm sending them these for their feedback. And frequently, when I say frequently, I don't mean three out of five. I mean one out of seven. I mean frequently, they take a real interest in it and want more. Sometimes it's even three out of seven. But I'm quite happy if I contact 10 people this week and one of them is interested in learning more. I hope that you'll develop that kind of thick skin and deep love where you can push through rejection one, two, three, four, 20 times and still be excited when you meet someone who's searching. I hope you'll have that kind of affection because that's the kind you need to be looking for those ripe strawberries among all those green ones in the patch. Of course, you're full of refugees there in Europe. And those refugees are in a, they're in the ideal situation for, to take an interest in something new in terms of religion. They've left their homeland and they're needing real assistance. And I, I have a friend working in, uh, 
Lebanon. I want to tell you her bad experience so you can be more understanding in how you reach those refugees. She prepared a nice a meal, maybe it was even a nice loaf of bread, and she took it to a refugee that just spurned it, became bitter, and said, no, I don't want it. And that's not what she was expecting. But as she tried to make friends, she found out later that there had been an evangelical missionary who had begun offering, would offer food to the refugees and then offer to continue giving food if they would convert to Christianity. You understand the idea. If I'll feed you if you will join my religion. And that was very offensive to, to that lady to try to buy her religion. Well, I'm glad it was offensive to her. It's offensive to me. The idea that you can buy someone's religion, that you can pay them to change religion, the idea that you would change religion just to get married or to get money or to get a job or to keep a job or that you'd give up your religion for one of those reasons, that just sounds to me like anything but godly. So, so realize that you do want to help those refugees, but maybe invite them to your house feed them, and then ask them if they need anything. And don't connect a carrot. To, I mean, don't, have you read this in Ellen writings? Maybe your English is your fifth language, and you don't know what to make of this phrase, disinterested benevolence. Disinterested benevolence almost sounds like you don't care about them. But what that phrase, that idiom really means in English is service that you give not expecting anything back. So when you give a flower to your girlfriend and you think she might give you a kiss back, that's benevolence, but it's not disinterested benevolence. But when you pick someone up off the street and help them and clean them up, never to see them again, and refuse any money from them, that's disinterested benevolence. And disinterested benevolence is that very type of work that opens up otherwise callous, hard hearts to say, whoa, what's going on here? It makes them see, because God's benevolence to, to us is also disinterested. I think you can see that. Uh, I have learned in my short experience, I've only been working on this type of project for five years, so it's not like I'm a, a great expert, but I've learned that, for example, when Muslims come to visit my wife and I in our house, if there are two of them, they don't want to touch the dog. But if there's one of them, they do. Do you understand what I'm saying? You invite uh, Muhammad and Aisha over to your house for a meal. I don't think that it's a good idea to start talking about how you'd like to share with them Bible truth. There's something about the religion that has made them suspicious of each other. And you're much better off to approach people one-on-one. -on -one. Ladies, it's when you get Aisha by herself. Men, when you get Muhammad by himself, that's when you have a good chance to share something. I, mean, I don't mean be shy about religion. I just mean let your religion be yours and their religion be theirs. Go ahead and pray for your food in the name of Jesus. They don't mind. Go ahead and talk about how God has blessed you. They won't mind at all. Talk about how you want to follow him and how you're trying to obey his commandments. 
why? Do you know that we Christians are some of the least religious people on the planet? And that it's very normal in when Muslims are talking to each other that they talk about God all the time. But we have it in our Bible in James, it says we ought not to say tomorrow we're going to do this or that, but if God wills, we will do this or that, because we don't know what's coming. Well, the Muslims use that almost religiously when they talk about the future, insha'Allah, that is, if God wills. And you don't need to say insha'Allah. I mean, you're welcome to, I do sometimes, but you can say if God wills. You can be religious for you and let them be religious for them, and they will respect you as someone who is sincere with your religion. Because just like there are many people who might call themselves Christians, who carouse and party and don't live in any faithful way, there are many people who call themselves Muslims who don't live in any way that's respectful to God. I'll tell you some of the things I've done that have been helpful, and you can pray for wisdom, and maybe some of them will be helpful to you. One of them is I've shared scripture songs. My students have written scripture songs in Malaysia, and I've shared some of those, and I find people love them. They love them. And I found that when I hold up a high level of morality, when I make a post on Facebook against sin, frequently my Muslim friends are more uh, ready to like it or love it than my Adventist friends. There's something about a high standard that's attractive to them. And uh, I share with them Bible promises. Now, some of my notes, I, I didn't use good handwriting. Oh, of course. Of course you want to talk about sin. This week I made a new contact with a lady. She, she's a Bengali who studied in Leeds, uh, there in uh, the UK. Now she's back in Bangladesh, and she has become a, a vegetarian, a vegan, and she receives death threats sometimes for her veganism. Well, as I've begun making friends with her this week, I think that she's probably leaning towards atheism. She hasn't told me that. But in her religion, it sounds to her like her religion is against saving the planet, and it's been a real turnoff to her. What I'm trying to tell you is don't be shy about your health principles. Don't be shy. One of the better well-known Muslims on the planet, Nas, from that Nas Daily, uh, his wife is vegetarian, and he has spoken in favor of it a couple times. And I'll tell you, that, that that message is getting out there, you don't need to be ashamed of it. You can let people know that you're a vegetarian for health reasons, and that's an in. The health message is great because, let me tell you, you don't have to speak of it. Maybe you should, maybe you could, but you can show it. Islam and Adventism both teach that we shouldn't smoke. But in Turkey and Indonesia and Malaysia, and Pakistan, and Jordan, and many other countries, most men smoke. We don't have an Adventist country, but I've traveled to Adventist churches around the world, and I'll tell you, very, very small percentages of Adventist men smoke. You get 100 Adventist men, maybe you have one or two smokers. Get 100 Muslim men in most of the world, you might have 60 to 90 smokers, depending on which country you're in. And what's going on right there is a very visible, a very visible picture 
of the difference between teaching morality and practicing morality, a difference between speaking about what's right and having victory over your passions and appetites, and when they see that you really have victory over yours, that you withhold yourself from those kind of things that you know are harmful, that is so impressive to them. Something else I should say about methods, try. Yeah, I, I told you that I've only been trying to reach Muslims now for about five years of my life. And I'm not having super success, although I think every week almost, I find some other good contact because I'm trying so much. But I found that I had miracles from the very beginning when I knew nothing and wasn't doing anything right. I mean, from the very beginning, God helped me find people. And here's why. It's because, well, think for, for about this girl named Sahar. Sahar, from the time she was 12, was looking for the truth. But there was no one within 100 miles of her house that knew it, much less would know how to find her to show it to her. And when we found her already at age 20, she was hungering and thirsting for it. God led her to us. It's a miracle that we found her. What I'm trying to say to you is that there are, among those one and a half billion Muslims, there are probably 50,000 of them that are so sincere and searching, right now searching so much, that when you just try, God will bring one of them into your life. Just try. Just give it a shot. Hey, a lot of them are readers and you know the book Great Controversy is just great for them. The first chapter is called The Destruction of Jerusalem, and it really is an eye-opener for them and matches some of their own prejudices to a certain extent. And uh, yeah, just try what you can do. So when I've been reaching out to them, and I'll close with some of these thoughts, maybe one more story. I found that the word love is powerful. I've, I've had a number of Muslims tell me that they never understood love. That in their own homes, maybe you don't know this, but in the Quran, it, it says to a man that if your, hus if your wife is disobedient, rebuke her, talk to her. But if she's disobedient a second time, withhold marital intimacy from her. Don't have sex with her. But if she disobeys you a third time, hit her. Well, it doesn't say hit her, but it says something, it gives you permission to strike her. You know, that is in the holy book. And the result of that on culture has been terrible. So that there are very many ladies that I've dealt with now who have been as, as young ladies, molested, raped, but even more commonly than that, beaten over and over again. So I'm saying, talk about love and show love. Let your heart go out. I find that in words, the Muslim people are extremely loving. The men love on each other and the ladies love on each other. And I don't think it's insincere because I've seen so much warmth there so much hugs and kisses and kindness and warmth. And comparatively, some of our Western cultures are just a bit dry and cold. 
Well, you've never met anyone drier and colder than me. Uh, when I give a hug, it's not natural. When I give a kiss, it's not natural. And what I'm telling you is that if I can put on some warmth, you can put on some warmth. We need to go beyond our culture and show some love. We need to confirm our love. And that love is the very thing that won the heart of that, that drill that was connected to the Italian woman. Well, let me tell you about someone who's in Germany right now. Maybe some of you are German and might have a chance to meet him. His name is Rajan, and I'm going to close with him. Uh, Rajan came to Malaysia to get a better life. He's Bengali, and he came there to study. And uh, I was working my way, walking through the city of Kuala Lumpur four years ago when my phone went dead. And because it went dead, I couldn't call anyone. And when I walked finally to the street of buildings where I was getting to, I knew it was the right shop lot, but there's like 30 doors for different businesses there uh, that all have upstairs apartments. I don't know which is the one for the, the refugee church where I'm going to be speaking. And I can't call anyone because my phone is dead. So I saw a little shop there in a sundry shop, and I asked them, a sundry shop, if I could plug in my phone. I said, I'll pay you a little bit if you'll charge my phone for me. Rajan uh, was working in that shop, and he charged my phone. And when I went to pay him, he wouldn't receive any money. My eyes are always looking out for nobility. I'm looking for people who have the right spirit. And when I saw that, I made certain to get Rajan's contact information. I began sharing with him. And it turns out he knew the, the refugees that had a church in his own shop lot. And uh, he was friends with some of them. And when one of my own students came to him months later, Rajan bought the great controversy. And I'll tell you, he's been working with me. He's been translating into Bengali. But no, Rajan is not an Adventist. He's still a Muslim. And now he's moved to Germany. And he's working there. And, and COVID caused him trouble. And I hope that one of you that live in Berlin, because that's where he is, might contact me and maybe take an interest in him and invite him out to eat. And, and maybe it'd be good for him to see that the sweetness and kindness he experienced in Malaysia wasn't just randomly meeting some people, but maybe that it, it belongs to us as a group. So you can pray for Rajan. Well, I've only told, told you positive stories. I've certainly had rejections. I've had people that have been rejected by so plainly, even after they'd come to church, one of them. A man who I thought was going to make such good progress ended up becoming a Hindu. I've had, I've had negative experiences. And I mentioned those to you, not to discourage you at all, but to encourage you to push through them. That the fact that you have a Judas is not evidence that Peter, James, and John aren't going to take the gospel to the world. And when I've had that one good apple, that the seeds from that apple seem to be producing an orchard of apple trees. So let me summarize what I've shared with you. I gave you my phone number, plus 6014-961-6203. I'm encouraging you to use that. Send me a note. I'll send you the studies. I want you to have them. Do what you can. Don't worry about your life. 
I can't worry about my own. I don't know what's going to happen when I head back to Malaysia in just a couple of weeks now. Maybe I'll be arrested there. I don't know. I can't worry about that at all. Because if I worry, if I let fear paralyze me, then how are you going to go forward? And I'm saying that to you, be fearless and courageous. Pray for boldness like they did in Acts 4 and get something done. Take a risk for the Lord Jesus. Do something to reach people. Many of the people in Europe right now that are Muslims come from countries where we cannot work from Somalia and Saudi Arabia and Syria, and from so many from, it, from other places where we can't go, please, when you meet one of them, you might be the only Adventist they're ever going to meet. You are their best chance to know the three angels' messages. Don't, don't fumble that ball. Try to catch it. And if you can't catch it and, and you end up being tackled, well, you tried. Do what you can. Forgive me using an American illustration to a European audience, but I think maybe you know what I'm talking about. So what I've said is that we're having some success. We're having it with call portering. We're having it by sharing meals. We're having it by talking to taxi drivers. We're having it by almost everything we try. We're doing it by sending by WhatsApp messages in many languages. And maybe one of those, two of those, or five of those are going to work for you. Don't forget what you're doing. You're taking the gospel to every kindred, nation, tongue, and people. For a witness to all nations, will the end come before that? No, the end comes when we make a witness to all nations. Let's do it now before suffering goes on any longer. Let me pray with you. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you will use these thoughts to make a difference for hundreds or thousands or more of people. I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.